You've seen the maps on TV ads. 5G wireless covers the nation. Yet the technology and what it can do are just in their infancy. A National Science Foundation funding program has been channeling millions in grants to academic and other nonprofit groups doing research in next-generation wireless. One project is known as Platforms for Advanced Wireless Research. It's run by Northeastern University and a group called U.S. Ignite. Here with more, U.S. Ignite Program Director Mari Silby. Ms. Silby, good to have you with us. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. And let's begin with the fact that your group, U.S. Ignite, along with Northeastern, got a $2.8 million grant recently from the National Science Foundation. Tell us what that is for. The Platforms for Advanced Wireless Research Program, also known as POWER, which is a little bit easier to say, we've been around for about five years now, and it was initially funded by a $50 million grant from the National Science Foundation, and then matching contributions in cash and in-kind donations from an industry consortium with companies and wireless associations, all of which you'd be familiar with. And most recently, the NSF put another $2.8 million into this project specifically for the project office, which is run, again, by our group, U.S. Ignite and Northeastern University, to continue the work that's being done. You know, we have four large-scale test beds that we've put out into the universe at this point, two of which are long on their way towards becoming sustainable in their own right, but two of which are really much earlier in their operational phase. And so there's still work to be done. And of course, there's more interest coming from the federal government and from the wireless industry as a whole right now, as everyone is looking at where to you know, channel funding to accelerate some of the advances that we are making in 5G and beyond sure. uh, next G wireless technology. And you mentioned test beds. There are four of those mm-hmm. and two of them you're building out still. What do you mean by test bed for wireless? That's a good question. If you think about it, there's no real sandbox or playground, if you will, to do testing of wireless network technologies in the same way that you would have, you know, Amazon came out with Amazon Web Services, you know, many, many years ago, the the start of the public cloud. And the public cloud lets people use existing infrastructure to build on and to innovate on without actually having to go out and build their own data centers, right? Well, the same doesn't exist for networks. So the real point of setting up these test beds was to create the shared wireless network infrastructure that people could come in and use and build on and experiment with without having to build their own networks. Got it. And what are some of the research areas? I mean, we have 5G. There's a little 5G on the phone. I can't see that it makes any difference on what the phone does versus the old one. I couldn't see much difference over what that did over the 3G phone. But anyway, stuff loads. What are we looking at in the 5G world? Yeah, there's a couple different things. So the first two platforms that were funded, the first two test beds, one's in Salt Lake City called Powder, and one is in New York called Cosmos. And their focus is really on using networks that are more open and programmable in the sense that you can get in and play with the bits and pieces of hardware and software that are normally locked down in a commercial network. So things that are vertically integrated, if you will, if you buy certain boxes or network equipment in the industry, you get with it certain software that you can't tinker with, right? It's all built together. You can't play with the bits and pieces. And there's really a lot more that can be done to make networks more effective, to perform better, to make them use spectrum better, lots and lots of different things that can be improved. But the only way to do that will be to inject some artificial intelligence, machine learning, algorithms, all of this sort of automation uh, that can be done 
And the only way to do that is to be able to, again, sort of tinker with some of the insides with open and programmable networks. So in a sense, that's where the analogy to cloud computing kind of ends, because in a cloud computing environment, you're not there to test the environment. In this case, you've built sort of a cloud where you try to improve cloud performance. That's an interesting way to look at it, yes. So the Powder and Cosmos test beds, again, are, are sort of up and running, and they have a couple of different research focus areas, including dynamic spectrum sharing and massive MIMO and edge computing, all these sort of jargon words that really do mean something in the real world, but you've got to go and play with them in an academic setting with some of these experts to really get at the application-driven performance benefits. And then the other two test beds, just real quickly, are sort of way more sexy from the consumer perspective in that they are application-driven. One is focused on drones. That's AirPod down in Raleigh, North Carolina, and that's drones plus wireless networking. And the other is a platform that is yet to launch, but will launch in 2023 in central Iowa, and that's focused on rural connectivity technologies and smart agriculture. Interesting. We're speaking with Mari Silby. She's a program director at the research organization U.S. Ignite. And so in a sense, the test beds relate to one another because to optimize a particular network for the applications and the purpose of these networks ultimately is the applications. And it sounds like maybe the goal is networks that are locally configurable to whatever the community there concentrates on. We don't have many farms in Manhattan, but there might be lots of drones. By contrast, in Iowa, you know, there's lots of farms and maybe not so many drones. I'm simplifying. <laughs> no, that's right. Is yeah, that no, the idea? no, but that's right. I mean, one of the goals when NSF started this program was to make sure that the test beds were geographically diverse, that they set up with different environments, urban, rural, as you say, places where you can fly drones. So, yes, that's definitely a critical piece. The other thing I should mention is all of these platforms are designed to be remotely accessible. So if you are, for example, needing to do some kind of spectrum research that needs to take place in an urban congested network environment, you can do that through the Cosmos platform without actually being in New York. You can access the resources remotely. They have staff there that can also do physical pieces that are necessary. But that was definitely another key criteria was people could be anywhere and still be able to access these resources. And how do you geofence them off? Because wireless by nature, you have waves that are propagating, and yet you don't want whatever's going on locally in one of those test beds to spill out into what might be the standard Verizon or Comcast or whatever infrastructure. Yeah. So if you're talking about the actual, there's two different pieces. There are the pieces of the network that are not coming over the air. So the non-actual RF energy or wireless piece. And there's a lot of work to be done there. And then there is the piece that is directly over the air. And that's a very interesting dilemma because as much as we need a lot of this research and testing and experimenting to happen, it is still very difficult to get access to spectrum specifically for use for research because, not surprisingly, the commercial operators want to make sure that it doesn't interfere with their actual commercial license operations. So there are some mechanisms. The FCC has something called an experimental program license, which allows research institutions to access low power spectrum 
spectrum with, you know, very specific constraints over how it's used. But the problem is that if a carrier or network operator, whoever owns the spectrum in that area decides that there's a problem or that it could interfere, they can shut that down very quickly. So unsurprisingly, spectrum that is popular, I'm sure you've heard about C-band spectrum from the perspective of, you know, the airplanes and the 5G networks and concerns about interference. Anytime you have an area of spectrum that people are concerned about, that's actually the spectrum that's hardest to get a hold of for doing research and collecting data to provide the information we need to understand where there's interference and where things are safe. So there's still work to be done to figure out more mechanisms, I think, for allowing spectrum to be used for research and development. And that's going to have to happen in conjunction with both federal spectrum owners and uh, the wireless industry. And I imagine if you do experiments at very low power, there's the question of whether they scale to full power. That is very, very true. Yes. You can do things, obviously, also in, you know, anechoic chambers or RF quiet zones. But, you know, that doesn't take the place of doing something in a, in a real world uh, network environment. I wonder if we got rid of TikTok, how much bandwidth that would free up, you know, for humanity's sake. And my can, other question is, try. there was, you know, recently now we have statutory bans on Chinese made telecom gear from Huawei and ZTE. Does that affect the work you're doing? It's actually a very good question. So the federal government, as you know, has suggested that these vendors are a significant security threat. And one of the things they've asked or they are requesting that the industry does is move towards more open and interoperable networks so that network operators aren't dependent on a small handful of vendors, including these particular ones that are security threats. So there has been funding allocated specifically to do more research and development on creating more open interoperable networks, something called Open RAN, because we love our acronyms, that's Open Radio Access Networks. And for example, one channel of funding is the CHIPS Plus Act, It's going to be administered by the NTIA. There's a $1.5 billion wireless innovation fund that will be administered by the NTIA specifically to look at these open interoperable networks. And the NTIA actually just today came out with a request for comment from the industry. Anybody can respond asking what is it that we can do to accelerate adoption and deployment and understanding of these types of network technologies. So this is a crucial time for the research and development piece because there is money that is coming from the federal government. So there's going to be a real push and a real momentum here. And relative to 5G, which is nominally deployed anyway throughout the country, what will 6G do and what are the, what's the technology <laughs> basis of that? Yeah, the problem with the Gs, as you sort of noted, they really are more marketing uh, than anything else. I mean, they're a bundle of network technologies. 5G is just a, a bucket of technologies. And from a consumer perspective, it's hard to make any sense of what that actually does. In the background, what's going to change between 5G and 6G is you are going to start to have a lot more automation and intelligence in the networks. Humans aren't going to control as many of the pieces, but we're also going to have to do things like figure out how to use spectrum more efficiently because as everything wants to be connected, suddenly this finite resource becomes very, very precious. So that will certainly be a focus in 6G. You know, also figuring out how to set up networks so they can support different use cases. You know, 5G is all about 
smartphones, mobile phones, but 6G will be about connecting things that don't have the same requirements as a mobile phone, whether it's IoT, whether it's medical devices. I mean, there, there's a, sure. a whole range out there and we've got to change the way the networks work to be able to support all these different use cases. And you also hear a lot of technologists in network design talking about 5G and actually occasionally even 6G for what they call backhaul, which is normally done on wires. So do you feel that uh, through the research, is it pointing toward a totally wireless future, do you think? Well, the more wireless we get, the more wires we need, <laughs> unfortunately. But yes, I mean, the wireless technologies are improving significantly. And, you know, that's one of the things our test bed in Iowa, one of the things it's looking at is how to use wireless connectivity technologies to reach more rural and remote locations because it's just not practical to get fiber end-to-end -end absolutely everywhere. So one of the things that's being tested there, for example, is free space optical technologies, which is essentially like what goes on optically in fiber in the ground, but it takes place over the air. And there are, you know, technologists have been trying to figure out how to extend the range of those links so that you could use them, for example, for a backhaul rather than having to have wired all the way. But again, there has to be a wire somewhere. <laughs> it's just how far, how far into the network it goes. And of course, free space optical, everything could be fouled up by a flock of birds going through your, your pathways. <laughs> Don't tell anybody that. <laughs> you know, and then you'd really lose it. So interesting. So what is the timeline for any of this or your organization is just an ongoing situation. It's a very exciting time in the wireless space because there is so much development and research still to be done. And we can see what the next innovations are likely to look like, but there's still a lot to do between here and there. And there's going to have to be a lot of collaboration too between, for example, as we mentioned, you know, federal spectrum holders and, you know, uses like, you know, the DOD and the DOE and how they use spectrum versus how the commercial industry uses it for wireless applications. There's going to have to be collaboration there. There's going to have to be collaboration between the industry and academic researchers, between public and private sector. So, you know, the work as much as it's been ongoing, in some ways it feels like it's just beginning because there is still so much more to do. And with having in-kind industrial contributions to match the government, it sounds like there is a pretty, I guess, uh, frictionless pathway for the intellectual property developed in this research to become commercialized. Well, I wouldn't say frictionless, but, but yes, there are pathways. And, well, there and are lawyers is, everywhere, so nothing there is frictionless. There are lawyers everywhere, right? So that only makes it so frictionless. Um, but no, yes. And, and I think some of those mechanisms have to be set up so that the research that we are doing, that the government is putting money into, that everybody can benefit from the research and findings that come out of that. And then also so that private companies can use that foundation to go in and continue to innovate without the same kind of capital investment up front, but innovate in ways that they can then take advantage of their own intellectual property there. Mari Silby is a program director at research organization U.S. Ignite. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.